Welcome back to the Levity Zone. You are about to get one more Burning Man talk, but from way back in the auspicious year of 2012. A talk that was thought to be lost, recorded by good fortune or better planning on the mixing board at Camp Fractal Nation by Andrew O'Keefe. This was a lovely session held in the Art Dome at the most visionary camp on the playa, headed by artist Android Jones. After a very kind introduction by Andrew and Android, I threw two questions into the air. What is your greatest fear and what is your greatest hope for the future? The audience then set us off on a theme that led us to circling around the machine that is running our world. Yet, as we can see, with no one in the driver's seat. Your Dr. Bruce then offered a tonic for our times, including a proscription to gradually take your leave of the machine, setting up an alternative reality so compelling and so much better that it will become the point of disembarkation of others from the machine when the wheels finally come off. The pulsing machine of nighttime Burning Man was coming to life as this talk wound down, so I hope you will forgive the infiltration of powerful beats coming from the live band on stage nearby. In fact, I kind of liked it, as it was the first time I had live musical accompaniment to one of my raps. So I'm going to hand the microphone over a minute to Mr. Android Jones, uh, creative visionary. You see his art over here on the wall, and he's going to tell you a little bit about our next presenter. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Brian. Hey, how's everyone feeling tonight? Yes, thank you for gracing us with your presence in the Visionary Art Dome. Uh, coming up next to the stage, we have a, uh, a close friend of mine. Uh, his name is Mr. Bruce Damer. I was introduced through Bruce through some podcasts at the, uh, the Matrix Masters. If anyone's familiar with those, the amazing podcast that Lorenzo has been hosting over the years. Bruce Damer is an incredible human being. Um, he's a living legend within this community. He's got one of the most brilliant minds that I've ever met. Um, he's literally a national treasure of intellect and uh, ingenuity and a pioneer in so many fields from computers to cyberspace to the exploration of consciousness. Uh, Bruce has not only an amazing uh, collection and history of technology at his house, he also has something that I'm exceedingly jealous of, which is Timothy Leary's old record collection. So just to give you a little bit of breath about what Bruce Deemer is holding for all of us. And uh, it's, a, it's a great pleasure and honor to introduce Mr. Bruce to you guys tonight and have him uh, greatly expand your consciousness as he has mine and my heart because he's such just a, a wonderful human being. So Bruce Damer, please take the stage. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Android, Andrew, beloved community member in the Bear Creek Valley in the Santa Cruz Mountains. If you're ever down in that area, come and visit us. Uh, you can go through Timothy Leary's library and, and 100,000 newspaper clippings, which go from the Harvard Crimson of 1962 when Ram Dass, then Richard Alpert, and Tim Leary were about to be fired from Harvard, all the way up through 1996. So it's a really great archive. Also, we produce a large archive of Terrence McKenna material. I have some papers from Terrence McKenna, but Terrence's archive was destroyed by fire. So that's kind of an archive for the psychedelic thinking 
you know, these particular psychedelic teachers, elders, avatars, if you call them. But uh, the talk tonight really isn't going to be about psychedelics. The talk today is going to be about the future because 2012 is, is a year, no matter if you believe in an apocalypse or in a, in a forward escape through the singularity wormhole, uh, it's a year of transformation. Why? Because we've decided that it is. And everyone is asking themselves what is coming and how can they transform the world. And uh, so what I want to do is a little fun exercise you guys have probably done before, but it's a throw the words in the air thing. And do it spontaneously, because we'll get the purest uh, alchemical gold from you. And I want to ask two questions, and anyone can basically shout out a couple of word answer. But we'll ask the first question, because Burning Man is a place, I think, where the external world is shielded out and somehow pushed back temporarily. There's a, a zone bubble of protection above you for this week. You can't make a cell phone call for one, but the default outside world is distant. And this is one of the only places in the planet you can do this. I go to Pakistan and I go up to Northwest Frontier Province sometimes. Everyone has a cell phone there. They have smartphones, they have iPads and Androids and things like that. They don't have Android Jones. But. So everywhere is connected, but this place is not. So it allows you a brief respite from the madness, the information no-sphere madness that's going on outside. And so this is a place where you can actually consider hopes, your best hopes. But what I wanted to ask the question is, given that you've had a few days or a week separated from your default world, uh, what are your worst fears about the future, your future personally, in three words or less? Just shout them out. Worst fears, I'll give you, I'll give you one, chronic, criminal mismanagement of economy that cripples the middle class. That's a really terrifying thought. Continued gutting of the middle class. That's my little worst fear about the future. Anyone else? Extreme global climate change. Extreme global climate change. Information overload. That's a good one. Inescapable surveillance. Inescapable surveillance. Somebody punching somebody in the face for not understanding the statute of responsibility. Somebody punching for someone in the face for not understanding the statute of responsibility. Okay. The people don't wake up. The people don't wake up. Bombing Iran. Bombing Iran. Okay. Lack of contact. Lack of contact. Mass apathy. Mass apathy. Government control. Government control. Lack of access. Lack of access to information. Nature deficit. Nature city, deficit. City nature deficit. City nature deficit. deficit. Any others? Uh, war. That's that's a big list. So, anyone have a greatest hope? Psychedelic revolution. Psychedelic revolution. That I can maintain the peace. That I can maintain the peace continually, peace here continually, because you can take it home. Any more great hopes? Cleaning creeks. Cleaning creeks. 
clean creeds. That's a beautiful vision. Communication. Communication. Separation. Communication separation. Following your intuition. Following your intuition. Following your intuition. So, with all this, I mean you're at this incredible crux where you could take some of those great hopes. I mean, Burning Man, let's face it, is like a trip. It's like being in a bubble. And you have inspiration here. Some of us, you know, we go home and it fades and you can't put it into practice. But for a lot of people, they do put it into practice in their daily lives. And you can do it, but the forces alive against you are huge. The forces of the job, money, consumer fetishism, you know, freeway shopping mall existence, the grind, constant interrupts of your thought streams. There's a huge, huge things allied or laid against you. So what I'm proposing here tonight is if you were going to go into a zendo or you were going to go to learn how to fence. You would never think of going into a bout with anyone without training. And what they would do for the first six months is just leg stretches so that you can do something called the lunge where you go forward like this. And because if you don't train for six months and you do your first major lunge as you're attacking, you'll just totally fry your, your whole you know, walking apparatus and everything else attached to it. So training, you have to train. What I'm proposing here is that in order to protect yourself from the onslaught of the outside world, you actually have to have training to guard yourself. And this for me started in 1991, I moved to Czechoslovakia. The Berlin Wall had fallen. We set up a software lab in an old castle in Prague. We call it the Silicon Castle. It's really fun. Beer was cheap, 11 cents a glass. So I put on about 25 pounds. But the interesting thing was that the TV was gibberish. It was still the communist channels and I didn't understand Czech. And I said, I'm gonna kick the TV habit. And I, I didn't watch TV since. And in fact, in 2005, I, I turned on a television in a hotel room and there was network news and I hadn't seen it since 1991. And I was shocked. What happened to the news anchors? Like, that one's really old, that one's old, that one's been replaced, you know, what, like it was yesterday. So I hadn't missed TV. I really hadn't. And in place of that, I cleared out, I think, about two and a half million hours of new usable time. And I also pushed back against the, the consumer onslaught, the guilt, the subliminal advertising, all that nonsense. Now, what's interesting is, you know, advertising, we just, it comes at us. My wife, Galen's father, made one of the first TV commercials in 1946, when it was just getting started. This is an, an, an interlude, but this is about where did the madman come from. So, in order to make a television commercial, they decide we're going to make a commercial for Chesterfield cigarettes in the Yankee Stadium. So what do they do? They drag 2,000 pound cameras with cables this thick down to Yankee Stadium. Her father was an illustrator. He worked for Yank Magazine in the war, drawing theater of war and like sad sack cartoons. And he went out on this job and he looked 
and they had stuck these cameras in the stands. They had mics in front of the baseball players over in the TV commercial. And the TV commercial had to be acted live every time because there's no way to record them. So a, a light went flashing off and the actors like stubbed out their cigarettes or went to their positions, their you know, home plate and you know, the batter and the pitcher. And then the TV commercial was reenacted again. So that's how television commercials started. And he realized nobody knows what they're doing. The, you know, the guy that is from theater was directing, so he stuck the cameras in the stands. And the guy who was doing the audio was the radio, so all the actors had the mics in front of them, you know, on camera. And he realized, he said, cartoon strips are the model for television. Tiny little cameos. Tiny little cameos where you get close-ups. And he became this great art director for, for television and commercials. Now, roll that forward. The Mad Men came then. And I'll, I'll roll you forward to the Cooper Union in New York in uh, 2002, I think we were there, for the funeral of the founder of advertising at CBS. Now, just to give you an idea of how kind of nasty these people are, and yet they're the message builders. So the reality of it was, this founder of television advertising, CBS, Lou somebody or other, had died, and they were having a big funeral at the Cooper Union in New York. They had this panel of, of old, ashen-faced men. And they're up there, and they're telling stories about Lou and blah, blah. And then suddenly, after about the third guy, uh, a woman stood up, and she pointed at each one of them and said, you're a fucking bastard, you're an asshole, you ruined our family. You did all these things and, and kind of took control and explained how horrible all these other ad execs were as human beings. And she had her, her moment to finally push back. So who nominated the madmen to create our culture, to create the messages we see every day, what we're supposed to buy and look like and everything? These are some of the, actually some of the worst people in business. They're, they have a really bad business practices, at least the founders of the field did. Now, if you don't believe me, you can roll back the clock a little bit later, and Jay Shiat, the founder of Modern Television Advertising, wrote about four or five years ago, wrote this story saying, advertising is the greatest crime against humanity. It steals imagination. Basically, the thing that we created has become a huge deficit for our civilization. It ruins dreams. It's, it's all about lies, et cetera, et cetera. So this is the founder of modern advertising. So the madmen, the message creators. So they're some of the culprits. Now we, we talk about Wall Street being the culprit, et cetera, et cetera. So does this make sense? So basically, I mean, there's creative, wonderful people in advertising too, but the, the, the industry's rotten to the core. It was rotten on its foundations. It really was. Um, and so, in a sense, you can discount the whole thing. You can say, you know, take their union card away. That's one other thing to defend yourself against. But you have to build a practice against that. So, that's item number one. Pretty much, as Henry Ford said, all advertising is bunk. And you can kind of take it at that, but you have to train yourself because you've been trained from youth to believe all this. You've seen a million commercials by the time you're 15 or 20 years old.
but it's a huge battle in programming of the mind. There's many other fields that are that way, but one of them is debt. If you get suckered in, or through your own desires, get suckered into debt, you get locked into the machine. And you know, many of us got locked into the machine and we got drowned out of the machine because we got foreclosed and, and whatnot. Debt is the, the untonic for the time. If you're out of debt and you live very lightly, you have power to take yourself out of the machine for more times than you would otherwise. If you're in heavy debt, you're going to be locked in that cubicle or in that service job all your life. And it's just terrible. So the key thing is not accumulating, not having debt above your head. There's a wonderful book called Your Money or Your Life. You know how when you're going to get mugged in New York, they, they used to say your money or your life. But it was a fellow who worked at the Boeing plant. And he worked out that he went to the espresso stand, the mobile stand, once or twice a day all year. He spent $4,500 in espressos just out of not even thinking. So he and his wife said, if we under-consume, we minimally consume, what can we save per year? And they worked out they could save 20,000 plus dollars per year. Then they worked out the living costs in all these different countries or different parts of the United States. And they said, you know, if we work for three more years at Boeing, we can live for 11 years in Costa Rica or in India or in Arkansas because the costs are so much lower. We can buy our time, we can buy our futures. And I, I have friends that do this and they live in a diesel pusher bus. They work for Microsoft for four months and then they hit the road and he calls it incremental retirement. Incremental. So they're retiring all the time and then they're coming back to work because he has a no debt and a very skilled particular job, but they live incredibly minimally. They had a mule, though, so they had to pull a mule in a trailer behind the bus everywhere they went uh, on their peripatetic journey. So that's another one. But all this is sort of coming up to say that you have the power to say no to the machine. We all still need the machine. Burning Man wouldn't happen without huge corporate infrastructure and highways and taxes and you, know, you name it. Burning Man would not happen. But you can take yourself out of the machine where the machine doesn't have you. It doesn't have your body, your mind, your soul for its, your whole life. You can take yourself out of it. You can go in and go out. And then when you have that going, and this is especially true for young people in their 20s, you know, college leavers, you know, one third are chronically under, unemployed, right? So they're out of the machines, they're pushed out of the machine. Because you come to places like Burning Man, you incrementally retire, you, you lead a lightweight lifestyle. When you go back into the corporate, governmental, you know, economic machine, you see it for the trip that it is. So does this make sense? You, so you have the power to disengage from that machinery. Now what happens is each individual disengages, you know, it might be only 10% of your time, or 20% of your time, but as you do more of it, you will learn. People who are making cabinets, you know, making fine kitchen cabinets can be kind of 80% of the way out of the machine. Now here's another thing that's, that's happening. Baby boomers were really wise. The boomers rock, 
I mean, the boomers rocked the world, right? And they still rock the world. And they changed huge institutions. They did a huge thing for humanity. And the boomer generation also did experiments in communal living and all these sorts of things. Had lots of failures, let's face it. I mean, the farm is still going, but what else is, you know, where else is still going? But I've heard of friends recently what they did because of the rolling foreclosure disaster. Guess what they did? They bought a bankrupt trailer park. And they went to all their friends that had their social security incomes and they put in and they bought into this trailer park. They re-engineered it so they have beautiful flowers and the whole thing. It's like Burning Man if there's the medical trailer as a full-time home care person. Now they're going for two. They created their own HMO and they got a grant. So they have created a new commune on the shores of the Pacific out of their ingenuity and, and basically saying, just say no. They didn't want to spend all their inheritance on, on individual home care and this, this completely cracked up system of when getting old and trying to stay at home, so they came up with a solution. Isn't that cool? Awesome. Now, why why couldn't everyone in this room do that? Why couldn't uh, you, know, you buy uh, trailer parks or buy land? In Hawaii, they're called hui's, and I don't recommend that model because when I visited Terrence McKenna in his hui in, in Hawaii, the first thing he said when we walked in the door was, I'm so glad you're here because it's an excuse for us not to go to the hui meeting, which is all about shouting about the terrible condition of the road. So, <laughs> sometimes those things don't work. But what I'm proposing here is a slow disengagement from the machine people being trained how to disengage. And one of the things that has shocked the television industry is the number of people who just watch YouTube. It has pulled the plug out of the money machine that drove TV. So that's a disengagement, but of course the corporate world will take over YouTube and shove ads in it and whatnot. So really true disengagement, the more that's done by each individual, and we're not talking boycotts, this is a quiet disengagement it will have a measurable effect, especially if young people do it, guided by boomer parents, for example, who can say, look kid, you know, you want to live as a collective, here are the lessons we tried massively in the 60s and 70s to do this, and you can learn from it, and you can make it work. And so as people disengage from the machine, they grow their own food, they do all these things. We, we live in the San Lorenzo Mountains, we raise pigs, they're not for eating. They, they eat everything we don't eat. So what we've done is, is slowly done that. And I still am part of the machine because I go off to do stuff for NASA. So I've done a lot of visualization of missions and I designed a, a scenario for taking humans to an asteroid for building lunar bases, and now I'm working on an origin of life project, and I can fly out to places and work on that, and come home, and we can put together the pennies that we make from each of these individual projects, and we can support a household, grow our own food, so in and out of that machine, but we're not owned by it. So what I'm suggesting here is if you came up with a personal strategy to do this, what happens is 
your sense of hopelessness and despair around, I have no control of my life. You gradually get control. You're now grabbing the stick shift. You're now driving a little bit, you know, and then the stick shift pulls out of your hand. But as over time, when you really do control it, and you help others learn how to drive your own car, you'll take the power out of that machine. And guess what? If the machine grinds to a halt, guess who are the people who are going to be the strongest. They're going to emerge out of the wreckage. You know, if there is a, if there is a wreckage of the economic system, the people like yourselves in this room who have disengaged over the years. Well, guess what? When that goes away, you will have an independence from it, and you'll be the new system. I lived in Eastern Europe right after the collapse of the Soviet Union, and everyone had a garden, two pigs in the backyard chickens and grandmother downstairs who did the chickens, the family and then their kids lived upstairs. And they had built these houses out of total black market economy, but they actually had good quality lives. They led good lives because they had good quality food because they grew it. Their garbage cans were tiny little cylinders because they produced no trash, because they didn't buy products in stores. Beer bottles are recycled, everything is recycled. If you went to a, a shop in Prague and to buy cheese, they would cut it off a block and give it to you on, a, on cheese paper. There was no packaged products at all. So they had no trash. So funnily enough, the old Soviet Union and the, and the Eastern Bloc is a model for how to live. And true to form, when the Soviet Union collapsed, nobody starved. I mean, there was, there was deprivation, but they were ready for collapse. There's this guy who wrote a book called The Collapse Gap. You, know, you remember the missile gap where you know, one power had more missiles than the other? Well, he was arguing that the Soviet Union was totally prepared for collapse, but the United States would be terrible in a collapse. And we've got to prepare for a collapse, just like Russians would you know, expect the worst kind of thing. So each of us individually is trying to pull away from the machine. But if we gather together and come up with techniques, to, say, protect our kids from advertising. So they don't need the $200 Nike shoes, which then all that expense and that cycle starts again. We get them into the schools we want. We, you know, get solar on the roof. We start gardens. We shut down the torrent of media coming into our homes. Pretty much all of it, but then have selective things. A lot of families in our neighborhood, they have no cable. Uh, my neighbor, just uh, last year, I saw him up on his roof and he was unscrewing the dish. And he threw it off the roof of his house and it crashed down at the parking lot. I said, hey, what are you doing? I said, I hate this stuff. I just, I can't stand it. You know, I said, don't they want the dish? You know, the dish is destroyed. I said, I don't care. They can come and get it. I'll, I'll leave it here. Till, you know, chickens will live in it. So. He just couldn't take anymore, and he's retired. He said, I couldn't take all the crap. And one day I just went crazy and I said, well, I've got this thing on my roof that's bringing this crap into our lives. And it's taking hours of our time. And yes, I like football, but you know, is it worth the exposure to this like through the dish off of his roof? So we, we feel our individual struggle and an individual pain and helplessness. Well, what if we collectively came up with how to disengage from the machine and how to create practices with each other of how to disengage with the machine and empower them. You know, you probably think in the United States maybe there's a million people who are kind of outside of the machine and sadly most of them are homeless people. 
there's some other people who've managed to disengage, but what if it was 10 million? What if it's 5 million, it's big. If it's 10 million, it's huge. Because those people are going to have kids that are going to be raised in the non-machine world, having been given training and protection from the craft. And what you find over time, guess what? You find the United States does not recruit enough soldiers. Because, you know, that's all crap. So people don't go and sign up. And because families live minimally, they pay for the education other ways. Gradually it becomes a saner country because people aren't watching all this crazy news. The power of news and talk radio is declining. And what you'll find is when markets shift, if suddenly there's a decline in an industry instead of a year-on-year -year growth, it creates panic in that industry. It creates panic in politics. And you can do this uh, with an individual corporation by boycotting them, but it only lasts for a little while. You have the power, 10 million people would have enough economic power to create real shifts in a ton of industries. And this is what happened to record business. So Napster and those other things, you know, they were having a 10, 15% year decline in the record business. So they were weaker and weaker and weaker. So they're, what were they doing? They were filing lawsuits and fighting back. But when they start fighting back, you know you have them on a run. Think about that. They will fight back, but you just increasing numbers vote with your feet and leave the system. But you've got to build an alternate system. Think about it, farmers markets in all of our towns, they are an alternate system. It's, grown like crazy, and it's, it's big and it's strong. All these alternate currencies that may arise, this is possible. So our worst fears about what the machine is gonna to do to the planet, we can actually start pulling the wires out of that machine. We can start undoing the little screws here and there, and it's just gonna fall apart. The Soviet Union fell apart on its own. The whole thing just collapsed in. So I wanna open it up for a Questions or ideas, maybe, that you might have on this, this approach? So, um, I'm in the sustainability business, basically, creating a different kind of market and way of thinking in terms of the economy. I think it's really important to think of other ways of transitioning the economy, like how it is, and not necessarily unscrewing the bolts, but rewiring the way that we think and how we do things so that we can actually get to where we want to be working with the system in the system to create something that's sustainable. And it's hard because we are working with like monetary means right now, and it's hard to get away from that. But realistically, that's what's working right now in our economy, unfortunately, but we have to find ways to prolong that. So I'm not sure if disengaging is the ultimate goal for each of us, but I think that there's ways to bring in our intelligence and our intellect and our consciousness into what's happening to spread that vibration and make it better. So what you're pointing out is disengage, but also re rewire what's there and replace replace it. Yeah, so that that's that's a great concept. You can disengage and replace over time. Anyone else have uh, any feelings about? I, I agree really with what that lady just said. Was I agree with the changing, the transforming of the connectivity, yet staying within the population. changing that. So, the boomers are getting older, 
we're all getting older. And uh, just at the same time as we're getting older, uh, it's very likely that the social security and uh, medical system may collapse in this country. So I'm wondering how we can take this uh, model of alternative self-sustainability and take care of old people within a community setting without having to say, take them to dreadful old people's homes or substandard medical care or have old people live in poverty, which too often is happening now. No, it sounded really good and uh, there are some obstacles, like you and I can pull out the plugs, everyone else can, everyone else can rewire it and that's what a community really is. And old people will probably be taken care of in a community that we all build. And it seems, it seems like we, we got it all together just you know, to quickly reduce global suffering. It is to get over the biggest hurdles as quickly as possible. If you get the New Yorker magazine, the issue that just came out has, you know, Bruce McCall is this wonderful cartoonist painter and the cover of the New Yorker is, shows a wacky alternate central park of the future and it has a lawn with buffaloes and it has a huge waterfall coming down that old New York Times building and on either side is like Tofu Palace and do your own you know, DIY funerals and hotel with no lift so you can get exercise and it's like this completely weird uh, what if the 70s had continued type of thing in the 80s never happened but this was refreshing and to, to see that uh, now did you know I, I can't remember the exact numbers the cost of places like Kendall you know where they take in old people if you if you're, you want to live in a Kendall facility and this is sort of a assisted living facility you have to basically give them a quarter million dollars to get in the door and then they'll take care of you and kick you out as soon as you need real critical care. And I bet you if you added up what families spend in terms of time and cash out the door for their parents, for their elders, it's probably like a trillion a year. So can you imagine just capturing that and saying, we're gonna capture a small part of that by doing that as a community and capturing all those savings back and not bankrupting families in the time that they spend. That's a, that's a great idea as to how to communally care for our elders. And it's the problem that won't go away. It's gonna, you know, my generation's gonna be next and everything. So the community that has figured that out and built an independent system to do just elder care will suddenly have a competitive advantage over those that don't, except for the 1%, of course. But what you want to do is use the power of Darwinian natural selection. So if our communities have these innovations like growing your own food, using uh, trade currencies that can't be taxed, uh, not being in debt, doing collective elder care, setting up our own schools, which is of course, that was one of the first things that was happening. We gain a competitive advantage in the ecosystem of the economy. It does not matter what corporations do, what madmen do, what corrupt politicians do. That competitive force in the 10 million, the 20 million, the 30 million people who pour into that alternative system will wipe them out. They'll fight at the end, but it will gut the system and it will collapse in on itself. So in, in some sense, 
when I hear the arguments, most of the arguments about how we need to change America, they're confrontative. They're like, they try to blame a cabal of people for, well, during the Nixon administration, a bunch of people did this to control what they thought of as social disobedience in the 60s and 70s. So they set up these mechanisms and that there were these enemy type dominator culture people that did all this. And unfortunately, it's what Terrence McKenna would have called a cartoon epistemology. It's so oversimplified that it actually doesn't match reality. There's no one individual who's like thinking up, you know, how are we gonna keep the people down and make them poor? And there are, there are you know, groups of individuals doing this. It's, it's a collective response of a system of individuals acting out of their self-interest and it pushes there and then somebody says something in a meeting and then people rush off here and a lawsuit's filed here, you know, and chaos happens there. But I'll give you a good example of how I know that there's no cabal that controls the world. Uh, I met a man, a man is starting up next door. No worries, we're gonna finish up pretty soon. I'll just tell you the, uh, the story. Maybe I won't. The story was I met a Turkish man in a Los Angeles airport who's dealing in weird currency transactions and illegal government shit. His name was Kojak because he was bald. And he uh, was a professional assassin. So he had been hired by governments to, to kill uh, the leadership of other governments. So I had this, I realized I had this, this opportunity. Here's a man that was in the system. And I asked him what, what you did, what, what job operations you did. He was in charge of assassinating the government of Chile, the government of Allende in Chile. It was his job. He was paid by the CIA or something like that. So I asked him, you know, Mr. Kojak, um, is there a cabal that controls the world today? This is in 1985. And he thought for about 20 seconds, he said, my family has been in this business for 500 years. Assassinations, trade, you know, etc. He was actually Turkish Lebanese. We've been doing this shit for 500 years. You know, I'm just the latest in generation. He said, there is no one in control. And there may have been families that had influence and corporations that had trusts that had influences before World War II, especially before World War I. But he said, since World War II, the money started flowing everywhere. And it, the system became so dynamical that if you tried to ride it and control any part of it, you got thrown off. And no one is in control. This goes back to what Terence McKenna said, that the, the more horrifying news is no one is in control. So when we think about the machine and the people who are running all these things, they're just responding, going from crisis to crisis to crisis. They don't, they're not any smarter than us. They're just reacting. So the machine is out of control, but nobody's driving it. Therefore, I, this is where I'll finish. I think if you start unscrewing the bolts on the machine and you start withdrawing and rewiring it, it just, it'll blow itself apart.
because no one's driving. No one in power positions is going to be able to fix it when it comes apart because they don't run it in the first place. They just respond. So that's where the hope is. And the Soviet Union fell apart exactly this way. The machine just broke itself to pieces. We didn't, it wasn't a result of our military strength or our ideological anything. It just fell apart. So it's going to happen, but you, we have to prepare and we have to train ourselves and the whole thing. But I think this is viable. This is, this is a viable approach. It's slow. I'm Canadian, so we do things slowly and with measured things. We don't have great campaigns, but I think this one is a winner. This one can, can make the change. And if the United States changes, the whole world will change behind it because we're this great big you know, weight on the system. So what if the United States looked like that New Yorker cover? You know, we didn't go to war and we didn't pillage other countries for oil and stuff. The rest of the world would just relax. Like, the crazy people have finally gone insane. They've gone home. There's no enemies anymore. And they're, they're, they're saying the rest of the world will be able to get on with living. And it won't have to worry about us. And we'll, we'll still make really funny movies. And they will appreciate what we do well. This was uh, Dr. Bruce's tonic for our times. And at that time, the topic of this uh, talk. So thank you very much. Bruce, thank you so much for that. Can we get another little round of love for Bruce here? As part of my much-stated prescription that we should all look at setting up an alternative way of living outside the machine, I end this podcast by bringing back some key segments of a talk by Dr. R.P. Kaushik from his appearance back on Levity Zone number 5. In it, the doctor advises that communities founded on ideas from the intellect, however well-intentioned, always fail to live up to their ideals and often fall into conflict. This goes for towns or for communities of disciples surrounding gurus. He gives us the golden insight that communities formed around a common connection with the logos or spirit energy have a chance to remake the world. How to make and keep contact with that logos is the subject of the doctor's insights in his other podcasts here in the zone and of all of our inquiry as us monkeys seek a way to ascend toward the light. When we say, let's make a spiritual brotherhood, this spiritual brotherhood is an idea. It'll never grow. It'll never happen. I think this colony of Warsaw, this city, was founded on the idea of a spiritual colony. I don't think there's much more spiritual about it than any other town in this country. It's just like any other town, like any other city. But it started with an idea, and that idea is nowhere in operation. <laughs> Why? Because it was an idea. It was not coming from the spirit. It was an idea, somebody's idea, or a few people's ideas. And the ideas get interpreted, and then the different interpretations come up, what spirituality is, and that fragmentation is brought about through the interpretation. In India, in south of India, they started a colony known as Oroville, just like Woodstock, which was going to be the center of 
an international new awareness, a new consciousness. And now that town is running into difficulties because it was an idea. But when we talk of Logos or we talk of the original word coming from God, then first of all let us be one in spirit and let spirit talk to us, speak to us. Then all of us move with the same spirit, with the same understanding, then you can create a new colony, a new world. But not the intellect speaking, not my intellect speaking to your intellect. Not through persuasion, not through propaganda, pressure, coercion, inducement, but through intelligence which speaks in silence. When I have no motive and you have no motive. So long as I have a motive and you have a motive, the motive is thought, the motive is the intellect or emotions. They won't let truth happen. So the, word, the spiritual universe can only be created through the Logos, through the word which is uttered by coming from the mouth of God, that means coming from spirit intelligence. Let's discover that Logos first. That's the whole question. It's creating all the time. If you ever contact it, you will find a new world is being created through the Logos. You have to experience it to really believe it or to see it. Not somebody else can tell you. When you contact this energy, you know that it is there, that, that force of vitality is, is there. And it, it can create, it creates, it can create anything. It can do healing, it can bring about transformation of consciousness, it can heal the spirit, it can heal the body. And that's how communication takes place from one person to another, where there is receptivity. And only in that spirit you can communicate and create something beautiful. Not through an idea, not through an intellect, not through an imposition of one intellect over another. It will not work. There will be only resentment. And then there will be violence because that sort of trying to change someone else through persuasion, through inducement is violence. What is that word? The Logos. That <coughs> word is the vibration, the vibrating energy which is creative. That vibration is Logos. And the whole energy moves in vibration. Vibration is the energy. And it's a scientific fact that that energy condenses into matter. So once you come to that, you can start creating things. Put your energy into it and creation will begin. And then you can create a beautiful world with that. But not through intellect, not through propaganda, not through preaching, <laughs> not through persuasion. Silence becomes necessary because only in silence you can contact the Logos. That's, the, that's called thunder of silence. The silence which is not dead silence, but silence which is vibrant. The silence is so vibrant, some people go crazy in that silence. If you ever go to a mountain top or to wilderness where there is no traffic, when there is no outer noise, or you go in some underground cellar, then you come upon this vibration of silence, the sound of silence. 
and many people cannot put up with it. It's almost shattering. So only in that silence you can listen to the logos, can, the logos can manifest. It's a great force, great vibration, great energy. And is destructive of the ego. Once you contact that, you can't can carry on with your egoistic activities. So whatever is written in the Upanishads or the Bible, that is true. There is nothing uh, doubtful about it. But we have to discover the art, how to bring Logos into our lives. That few people know. And people who are even talking and preaching about that, they are only talking and preaching about it. They are not bringing it about in actual life, in actualization. Because as my friend said the other moment that we criticize the people and we criticize when you talk of this Logos and you talk of these words but when the Guru dies and the disciples go to the court in litigation to decide the right of succession and then I say the Logos was neither with the Guru nor with the disciples. Logos should change your life. Then you don't go to the court for litigation. Don't go for these certificates of succession through a court. I'm not criticizing anyone, but I'm saying people who talk of that thing, but it's not manifesting. So can we do that if we really bring it about? And if in our lives it happens, we don't go to the court. Difficulties may arise, differences may arise. Can we see that in our lives we don't repeat the same mistake what have happened before? Not a criticism of those people, but a lesson for all of us. Because when it comes to our turn, we do the same thing what others have done, no better. I don't think the culture of stress permits that. It's like leaving a therapy session. You feel wonderful for an hour or two until the culture grabs a hold of you. No, but then you see you have to go and live it in your life. You have to bring it in your life. One hour here, if this spirit, this understanding cannot be carried into your home, into your profession, into your work, then it becomes a therapy session. So it depends from what attitude you come and meet. If you want it to be therapy session, it's a therapy session. Then you have to come again and again to the therapy session. Each time you are a little better. But fundamentally no change. No, that's no answer, I agree. But I say that anything relative to what you've just been talking about for the past few minutes is not permitted to exist in a culture of stress. You want it to exist, the culture doesn't permit No, no. No, I won't agree with that. Because Social influences have always tried to undermine freedom, individual exploration, always, throughout the ages, throughout the history. And some individuals express that vitality where they defied the culture. Defied not in the sense of a protest or an arrogance or, or starting a counterculture, just not submitting to it. Outwardly they may submit, not inwardly. Inwardly you don't conform. So outwardly you may remain in that culture. Outwardly you may look like anybody else. But inwardly in your life you renounce it. If you can do that, you have gone out of the culture. And yet you are living in that world, you are living in that culture. You are not creating any nuisance for your neighbors. You are not wearing different robes or different clothes. You may not have a different name, you, have, you are speaking the same language, you are dressing in the same way. You are going to work in the same way, but inwardly you are different. So unless you bring about that inward change, 
you cannot resist this outward cultural pressure. Question is, if you see something wrong in the culture, can you say no to it under all circumstances in your life, not in other people's lives, let other people do it. Don't go and preach. Don't go and protest. Let anyone do what they are doing. But in your life, you don't do it. That's the beginning. Thanks again to Andrew O'Keefe for finding, cleaning up, and thereby resurrecting this talk, long thought to be lost. This was my first talk on the playa for five long years, so I'm glad you could finally catch it. Thanks also to futurist David Houle, who was there taking photos and some video, which you will find on our site at www.levityzone.org. Thanks to Dr. Magnus for his wonderful piece, Waves of Tranquility, which we used in our intro and our outro. And thanks also to Jacob Amon for his usual sterling treatment of our cover art. And yes, that is me in dreads, of the temporary sort.